Hello everybody. Welcome again to Ruth is Stranger Than Fiction. It's time for another stranger episode, possibly a mini stranger. It's one of those ones where we don't quite know how long it's going to go on for, so I guess we'll decide at the end. Chris. Hello. I know last time we spoke, my dears, I promised you that we would have some strange religious business for the next episode. Unfortunately, the planned episode recording had to be cancelled due to the pandemic as we might call it. Mm, COVID ruins the party. Yeah, COVID ruined the party. Some people we were hoping would be able to join us weren't able to join us. So don't worry, because that's still going to come, but I've got a little filler inner. I'm always ready with a filler inner for just such an occasion. So I've still got a story. We're drinking some Adnams out of a keg. We're not literally drinking it out of the keg. We're pouring it from the keg into some glasses and then we're drinking it out of the glasses. But you can get like a mini ghost ship keg. Just from Sainsbury's. Just Sainsbury's will bring that to you. I can't believe we've only just discovered this now and not 18 months ago at the start of the bloody lockdown. So we've got a little mini keg of ghost ship. We're drinking some Adnams. This story is a little bit suffocy. What we're going to hear about today in a roundabout fashion is the story of a Mary Chegriff. Mary Mm. Chegriff. How are you spelling that? C-H-E-G-R-I-F-F. Oh, yeah. Chegriff. Chegriff. Oh, Chegriff. <laughs> the story of Mary Chegriff. Like Cheggers, plays pop. Mary Chegriff, the witch's daughter. Let's call her Cheggers. No, we're not calling her Cheggers. Come on, disrespectful. But first, we've got a little bit of background as to how this story came to reach us. This story comes from a Victorian book called Bogey Tales of East Anglia. <laughs> and this is a new thing that I have only just discovered. A bogey tale. Although, the, well, no, the whole thing, the whole the book, book, Bogey Tales of East Anglia. But I suspect we might revisit it again. And by bogey tales, it means, you know, bad bogeys like wraiths, spirits, ghosts. Hoggets. Just sort of strange goings on. Strange Banshees. figures. All sorts. All sorts of stuff. And this book was first published in 1891. The tales were gathered and set down by the author M.H. James... And it's actually thought to be the first such collection relating to East Anglia. So in the sort of classic oral history tradition and the folklore tradition, all the chapters are different stories that have been told to the author Mm. by folk. The classic folk of folklore. (laughs) Toothless old men in East Anglian pubs. Oh, Vin's just emerging. Vin um, has a new secret place which he hides in, which is behind the futon. And for a while... We didn't know where he was. He, we kept, were like, he's got to have a secret place because he kept emerging from upstairs and we couldn't work out where he was. And we've now established it's behind the futon. So sneaky Vin, he's just come out because he said we're talking about bogeys of East Anglia. He's like, I want in on this. I've got some stories to tell you. The sights I've seen at night, he says, when I've been out, mainly mouse related. Now, the book Bogies of East Anglia, originally published 
1891. The original cover, I've seen a picture, was excellent. The writing was all wibbly wobbly, <laughs> like uh, spooky writing. Right, like Willow the Wisp. Kind of like Willow the Wisp. And then the picture on the cover was like a shrieking wraith or demon. <laughs> and the writing is all wobbly wibbly spooky around it. The new edition was published in 2019. Ah, I was going to say, where did you discover it? I discovered the new edition. So obviously over 100 years Mm. later. And the new edition is edited with an intro by the historian Francis Young. And in my discussion to come, there's an excellent essay by Francis Young about this book on the Folklore Thursday website. I want to tell you a bit about the history of this book. Okay. For many years, the identity of this author, M.H. James... Was unknown. A lot of emphasis on the H in that name. M.H. James. There were no more books published by M.H. James. Nothing was known. The initials were never expanded. Always M.H. James. No other publications by the writer. Not at the time, I guess nobody cared. But in later years, when people have started to become interested again in this original text, people were like, who is this M.H. James? Mm. Is it an author that we can link to anything else? What was their background? How did they come to write this folklore history? There was some speculation that it was our other James author. M.R. James. M.R. James. That's why I you were particularly <laughs> emphasising the H earlier on. Writing under a different name. And this is partly because a lot of the places that are talked about in the in the book are similar to the settings for M.R. James's stories. You might imagine he'd go to slightly more lengths to consider <laughs> his identity <laughs> than just changing his middle initial. <laughs> so there was some speculation about this and there were various academics and researchers set about trying to find out who M.H. James had been and how this very early uh, folklore book of East Anglia was written. In the end, it transpired it wasn't M.R. James writing under a different name. However, there was a connection with this much more famous writer of East Anglian weirdness. As recently as 2017, two researchers were able to trace the authorship via an obituary from the year 1939, Mm. and they could trace the authorship of this book, Bogies of East Anglia, to a woman called Margaret Helen James. This was the first inkling that the author was actually a woman. Right. It hadn't really been suspected that that might be the case. There weren't women writing books in 1880? Uh, Well, for sure there were, but maybe not so openly. And perhaps the fact she was a woman contributed to the fact that she used initials and not her full name. Mm. She was a professional indexer who had worked on publications by writers such as Winston Churchill and indeed M.R. James. Mm. But the connection didn't stop there. Margaret's father was Henry Horton James a maltster who lived and worked in Oldborough on the Suffolk coast. Oh, lovely. And Margaret's uncle, Henry's brother, was Herbert James, the rector of Great Livermere Church. Does it ring a bell? It doesn't, but I'm going to guess that that's probably the church that features in The Warning to the Curious. Yes, (laughs) and of course, Herbert James, the rector of Great Livermere Church, was M.R. James's father. Oh, crikey. Crikey! Right. Now you make the connection. So M.H. James, this mysterious writer of right, this was early... was related to M.R. James. She was his cousin. Oh, how funny. So M.H. James, Margaret Helen, was M.R. James's cousin. Although Margaret later faded into obscurity, as I said, she didn't write any other books. She worked as an indexer, but that's not going to get you accolades or no. not getting your name in the papers. It's dirty work, isn't it? Her sister Minnie, Minnie Stewart Rhodes James, 
Ah, a Rhodes. Yeah, a Rhodes. Middle name. She achieved some renown as the first woman to run a major national library. She was appointed head librarian at the People's Palace Library in East London in 1889. And there's another interesting feminist connection, thinking of these kind of strong women doing the first women to do such and such. Francis Young points this out in his essay. Another old Bromolster in the same time period was Newton Garrett... His family and the Jameses knew each other well. Both fathers were maltsters. Tell me a maltster. Do you know what one is? Well, preparing the grain, I yes. guess, for beer. An important job. Yeah. Some would say vital. Well, I mean, the beer's not going to happen without it. No, very important. Anyway, Newton Garrett, who was a friend of Margaret's father, he had two daughters. Is one of them Elizabeth Garrett Anderson? One of them's Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, the first female doctor in Britain. And also, Millicent Garrett Fawcett. Do you know the name, no. the name Millicent Fawcett? She was one of the leading figures in the suffragette movement. Oh, okay. So, Newton Garrett, to his credit, had these uh, two daughters who became kind of trailblazing women. And they, the families were very good friends. And Millicent Fawcett and Margaret James, M.H. James, were lifelong friends. And indeed, Margaret indexed some of Millicent's books when the two were older. So there's this kind of strong sort of pioneering spirit amongst the women of... The monsters, the monsters, daughters of Oldra. Born out of beer. I think that's a... (laughs) Could be, could be. Margaret, who wrote The Bogies of East Anglia didn't become really known for anything else and, in fact, wasn't even known for writing this book until over 100 years after her death. But she grew up in this kind of environment where very kind of well-educated and high-achieving women uh, all around her. How has it worked out from the obituary, then, that uh, she was indeed the M.H. James that wrote the book? Well, an interesting question. I suppose there must have been recognisable times and places mentioned in the book that could be traced to if you know you you focus your research in a particular area and then you find maybe this person and then you look at the history of that person and you're like okay I don't I don't know exactly but I know that it was unearthed and presumably could be corroborated that this was the person Mm -hmm. now just before we move on to the story from the book the bogies of east anglia I want to tell you Francis Young also comments on another quite vexatious element of this history. Bogies of East Anglia was not a great hit. There are very few copies still existing today, which points to the fact that after the initial print run... Pulping. Well, (laughs) maybe pulped or just no more. Mm. It was never reprinted. There were no more editions after the initial one. It quickly became another obscure book. Mm. But another book was published not too long after in 1914. And this one was written by the journalist Morley Adams, entitled... In the footsteps of Barrow and Fitzgerald. And Young maintains that Adams actually plagiarised a lot of the work oh, from really? Bogies of East Anglia. And because this book was really not very well known, Morley Adams recounts a lot of the stories that occur in Bogies of East Anglia. And, and he says, oh, I gathered all these stories. Mm, I went around right. talking to people and I got all this information. And he presents it as his own work. But Francis Young points out that there's like huge similarities right. in when you look at the two texts together, there's actually a lot of crossover, which is not just, it's beyond you get the same folk stories coming up again. Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. kind yeah. of everything is almost replicated Wouldn't in Morley Adams' book. through the uh, modern plagiarism software that no. uh, universities employ today. <laughs> 
But because the original book was was not well known at all, right, you could get away um, with that. For a long time after, folklorists and kind of uh, historians looking at East Anglian folklore uh, gave him all the credit. Took Morley Adams's text as being the kind of definitive text and the first text on this subject, and so it was a really long time before it was actually recognised that M. H. James had done a lot of the early work in this area, right. and before she actually could get the recognition. Indeed, in the last five years or so, people start to realised that she was actually the person that put in all the groundwork right. in this topic. So there we are, a man stealing a woman's work <laughs> and taking it? the credits. I mean, to be fair to Morley Adams, I guess he didn't know it was a woman's work. He was happy just well, to take true. anyone's that's work. True, yeah. <laughs> so that's a bit of background on Bogies of East Anglia, which I think is really interesting. And as I say, we'll hear some more. I'm sure at some point we'll hear a bit more about it. And I'm going to try and find out a bit more about Margaret Helen James if I can. Now, how did she gather her stories? Some were folk tales she'd been told in her youth by family members, friends. Other stories, she actually went around the region and spoke to people, wrote down these stories that they told her. She had an unnamed collaborator who's kind of referred to in, in the introduction to Bogies of East Anglia, but not named, right. who did also help her gather because you want to span as much space as you can. Yeah, like the X-Files. Right, you need a Mulder and a Scully. Exactly. Okay. On the whole, the, the sources are kept anonymous, as again, we often see. She even renamed some of the locations. Oh, really? For example... Much like M.R. James. Yeah. Shingleborough becomes a kind of stand-in in, in her book for Oldborough. Oh, right. So it's never okay. referred to as Aubrey by name. It's called Shingleborough. But based on the, the stories and the, you know, the geographic stuff, it's it's clearly... And there's nowhere called Shingleborough. No, but what, so what's the reason for doing that? I can understand why in like M.R. James, Aubrey is not called Aubrey because it's a work of fiction, whereas this is a... Well, I suppose it's a work of retelling fictions, isn't it? But yes, I mean, the thing with Bogies of East Anglia is it's presented as, not as fiction, but as stories. So it's yeah. tales yeah. almost to entertain. But why wouldn't you ever locate them in the place in which they were supposed to have Well, happened. there's a couple of things that she says in the introduction. She says some of the contributors who spoke to her didn't want to be associated with these old supernatural beliefs, so right. they were kind of embarrassed right. that they still believed in these stories and they didn't want to be able to be identified. The modern world was fast approaching and they felt out yeah. of place and stupid for it. She also says, interestingly, that some of them wanted to remain nameless or not for the stories not to be able to be identified to particular places right. because they thought that the the bogies themselves or the kind of the spirits whatever would be pissed Benchful. off yeah they would be like stop telling margaret james about my horrible hauntings and all this kind of thing so some of the idea was that actually the people she spoke to didn't want it to be identifiable to right, particular right. locations or particular people because it might bring forth a kind of adverse vengeful reaction from them or bring bad luck or that kind of thing. So some of the stories are familiar. One of the chapters is about a hellhound, which we may readily identify as Black Shuck. Right, yeah. Although it's never referred to in the book as Shuck, it's always just called a kind of hellhound. But right. again, the stories are identifiable. And then there's others that I haven't come across anywhere else, which is quite fun, because you do sort of see the same East Anglian stories over mm. and over. So one of the more obscure tales that I had never come across before concerns Mary Chegriff. Cheggers. Cheggers, the witch's daughter. And actually in the book, the story is called The Story of Lucky Chance. But to me, Lucky Chance is a mere minor character, right. whereas Mary is the primary character. L Lucky so. Chance is a person as opposed yeah. to a thing. 
I suppose you can, well, see what you think at the end. You might oh, okay. also think it refers to something else. But So I want to look at The Witch's Daughter, the story of The Witch's Daughter. Now, the author, M.H. James, notes that this story was collected from entirely illiterate persons and given in the vernacular. She writes a lot of it in this vernacular, so right. she tries to keep the vernacular of her source. And <laughs> I will attempt some vernacular. Oh, goodness. <laughs> We'll see. There's some good quotes from the story, so I want to try and do it justice. Mary's mother was known as the Chegriff Witch. She lived around the area of Loddon, near Norwich. And it may be, it's not kind of specified where this Chegriff comes from, because it's not a surname. Oh, okay. Because actually, as, as <laughs> we find out, the woman who told Margaret the story says, actually, we all called her Mary Chegriff, but that wasn't her name. She wasn't called Mary. Her name was maybe Maria, or it might have been Maura. <laughs> and they weren't called Chegriff, but everyone called her the Chegriff Witch. Right. So Mary um, was known as, well, Maura Mary Maria, kind of got the handle of the Chegriff Witch daughter. I guess in a way it's a bit like how surnames developed in the first place. Sure. Isn't it? Yeah, and it's also got that, um, I mean, it, it's interesting because the source that's talking to Margaret tells the story as if she was there, but then you're like, oh, well, it's got all these hallmarks of being kind of told to different people and the names get a bit convoluted yeah. and the details get a bit kind of smudgy. But the name may come from Chet, the nearby river, or the village Chedstone is nearby as well, so it may be that it's some kind of bastardization of that. Now, the Chegriff witch could read hand lines, she could right. read foot lines, Ooh. and she could read the stars. She was known to be able to fortune tell in a variety of ways. She always asked to be paid in gold. <laughs> Wise. Very sensible. We all know the price of gold is yeah. one of the few reliable things in our modern economy. The witch was known to travel away from Norfolk, sometimes for many months at a time. And after one such travelling escapade, she returned with a baby. And this was baby Maria or Maura, or possibly Mara. Marie? Could be. Marie. Mary. Margaret James notes that there's some associations between the name Mara and the origin of the term nightmare. Oh, okay. I mean, there's no suggestion in the story, but I suppose she's making associations between different ideas of folklore mm. of a kind of sinister being, almost. Because the nightmare... Do you know about the nightmare? Are you thinking of the is it a, the Jura painting? It's Henry Fuseli. Oh, Fuseli, not Jura. Of the, yeah, the, the beast sat on the chest of the sleeping person. Yes, a woman kind of tossing in bed with her ethereal nightdress and this horrible creature sitting on her chest. And that's the, the idea of the nightmare is this kind of mythological demon who brings you nightmares, brings you terrible dreams, like a incubus as well. Yes. I suppose a similar thing. No relation to the female horse. The word mare Got in you. nightmare has, has nothing to do with that. Anyway, so from one of these long travels, the Chegriff witch returns with a baby. The village people were concerned because Mary, Mary's mother, the witch, she showed no inclination to get this new baby <laughs> baptised. <laughs> well, what could be worse? They were concerned, Chris. Come on. So two people sat here <laughs> unbaptised. Well, sure, but this is the year 2021. <laughs> no one's getting baptised now. Are they? I mean, 40 years Probably ago for us, are. but... The job of baptising Mary fell instead to a local woman named Mrs Crab. <laughs> it's like Cold Comfort Farm. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs Beetle, Dick Hawk Monitor. It was Mrs Crab, the local woman. She was very good faring. 
she was very concerned about the thought of having an unbaptized baby running about Even in the, the vicinity. Uh, running about the village. The mother, though, the Chegriff witch, suggested it was entirely a waste of time as Mary was already bound over to Satan. Oh, God. Even at this young age. Satan gets in early, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and the mother was like, well, there's no point baptising her before long the loyalty to Satan will start to show. Yeah. The moment she starts to become conscious, the evil her glint. allegiance is going to be uh, yeah, very clear. <laughs> but defined. Mrs Crabbe persevered. She was like, That's well... That's the nature of yuck. those kinds of people, isn't it? Exactly. By all accounts, though, Mary was a kind and decent girl as she started to grow up. There were some concerning signs when she started to make charms for her peers at school. Out of body parts. <laughs> Maybe straw. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I suppose they could have been like a toad leg Chicken or bones. something. Yeah, yeah. They go. That's more deep south, actually, isn't it? They go in East charms. Anglia. And the parson of the village questioned her about these charms, and she said, "Oh, I've learned to make them in my dreams." Oh God. He didn't like that though, the parson. No, I'm not. I'm sure. He and he didn't. said, "Look, Mary." Mara, Moira, Marie. If this sort of dreaming carries on, it's hell for you, for <laughs> sure. You'll be going to hell before too long. And so Mary tried to put all that aside. Okay. No more talk of dreaming, no more talk of charms. What did Satan make of that? Well, we don't know. If you think Satan won't like that, how about this? Mary attended communion and even went on to win some sort of Bible prize at school <laughs> for her good studying of the oh, Bible. Oh, great. So, if anything, she was the holiest one in the village. She's basically rebelling against her parents, isn't she? <laughs> yes, probably, yeah. Well, because one of them's the witch, and who's the other? We don't yeah, know. I feel like there's a kind of early 90s American teen comedy in this. <laughs> Witch's daughter is Mary top of the class at Bible school. <laughs> oh, <laughs> probably like she... Shannon Doherty would be in it. Oh, she goes home and her mum's like, come on. Get involved in making this evil broth with me. And she's like, no, mum, I'm going to read the Bible. Yeah. And the mum goes like... Oh. Some candle after. And the mum is probably Susan Sarandon or something. No, Susan Sarandon's too big for that kind of thing. Oh, you're saying it would be a, a low-budget thing? Yeah. A low-budget affair? Like the mum out of Married with Children. Katie Seagal? Yes, yes, it was, wasn't it? Katie Seagal. From Sons of Anarchy? <laughs> yeah, she I, could be the Chegriff witch. In the early 90s, I'm talking though. So, yeah, okay. I can see it. Let's send the script. We'll pitch it. <laughs> We'll pitch it over. We'll listen to how it unfolds because you might not find it so funny later. You might see, mm, it's gone a bit more the craft than I'd like. <laughs> a bit less she's all that and a bit more right. the craft. Anyway, Mary showed no signs of being bound over to Satan when she was a girl and a young woman. Despite this, her mother continued to say, What's the good? Satan ain't going to give up the child and I tell you, she's bound over. The mother was stubborn. Yeah, also sounds like she knows something we don't. Maybe. So we'll hear a bit more now about the mother's witchery. It wasn't just charms and fortune telling, although they certainly played a part. It was also reported about the village that she had two imps, <laughs> a male and a female. Here's a quote from the story. Impses is a right little sort of fairy, like a person right enough, but with wings like a bat. These imps could get to any size they liked, but they kept small as a bat mostly. <laughs> The witch let them bite women who wanted to become witches and she kept them in an old thick box. Oh, doesn't sound very fair. You think let them out? Well. Let the impses live? <laughs> don't keep them in a thick old box. Well, they're naughty, aren't they? So you have to keep oh, them... Because I, so. I think the thing with impses and familiars is you have to let them know that you're the boss. Right, right. If you're okay, a witch, yeah. you yeah. can't just let them do they're whatever they They're not going to do want. your bidding otherwise. What do you think about this claim of the impses? Oh, probably unlikely, isn't it? I think they were just bats in a box. <laughs> They kept small like a bat. Or dolls with bat's wings. 
And she made them like puppets. Yeah, maybe. Oh, I'm an imp. <laughs> but it was really just the witch doing a voice. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Like, you know, these you know wise old women, very rarely were they witches. No reason she couldn't have been a ventriloquist. <laughs> not a witch, just a ventriloquist. They were just misunderstood. Could be. Maybe understood, not a witch, but unpleasant, an unpleasant woman. After Mary's confirmation at church, her witch mother started to beat her. She said that Mary was spoiling all of the herbal broths and the teas <laughs> and the charms that she was trying to make, right. as if the confirmation had kind of... Right. Yeah, Some of the good the was seeping out of her. And, exactly, and spoiling yeah. all the witches' things. At this point, Mary went to live with Mrs. Crabb. You remember Mrs. Crabb? I remember. Seems like a good bet at this time. Yeah. I bet she's a busybody, though. Small village. Yeah. People talk. Mary grew to be a tall and pretty girl, described as thin and white, like David Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> Not a duke, though. <laughs> no. Otherwise the same as David right, Bowie. Yeah. In, in all other ways, indistinguishable from David Bowie. Uh, but also very skilled at needlework. I don't know about Bowie's skills at needlework I or otherwise. He probably, when in the early days, he would have been running up some of those costumes himself, wouldn't he? Probably. Actually, he probably got Angie do it, didn't he? But then he did too many drugs. And Angie? His, Angie. Angie Bowie. Who's Angie Bowie? His first wife. Oh. I thought you'd got confused and you were thinking of Brian May's wife. <laughs> David Bowie got Anita Dobson <laughs> off of EastEnders to make his clothes for him. Did you not know that? It's all there in the history books. Yeah. <laughs> Is now. It's also said that by the source, some in the village were spiteful towards her because her mother was a witch, or so they thought. But Mary never responded in kind and spitefulness, but only with grace and gentleness. So she seems an exemplary yeah, like a good young one. lady. She was rather shy around men and often became stammed if they spoke to her. And Margaret James helpfully translates, stammed means astonished and overcome. Oh, okay. I thought it might be like a stammer. Mm, could be the same root, yeah, I suppose. Be. But yes, uh, she became stammed, which she sort of was like, oh, oh. And she couldn't speak to them and she just would run away. That's teenage girls. <laughs> yeah. But some in the village were more saucy, I think. <laughs> At some point after all this, Mary's mother took to her bed. The story goes that she wasn't ill. She just knew that her time was up and took to her bed. She was laid up comfortable. I guess if Satan's coming for you, you know when it's going to be. She was getting ready to go. So Mary at this point moved back to her mother's home to look after her, which was quite nice of her. Yeah, considering. Considering that she, since Mary's little tiny baby, had been saying that Satan was coming for her. <laughs> it's a bit much, isn't it? Maybe she just wanted to wait and see. Ah, <sighs> Maybe. Now, a new character enters our story. This is when we meet Lucky Chance. Oh, yeah. Have you got any guesses about what his nature will be? How did he get the name, I suppose? I can think of it, he's a bit of a wide boy. Mm. Bit of a geezer. Nice. Just rolls into town. Yep. You know, charms all the ladies, I expect. Oh, you're really close <laughs> to the mark here with your description. Any other thoughts? Probably a bit nefarious. Right. Now... No good will come of it. <laughs> he was a peddler, so... You know, wide boy, peddler, yep. kind of the same. He'd been in Loddon for around a year by the time Mary's mother got ill, peddling things from his pack. Right. In exchange for payment of one sort or another. Right. Kisses from the girls, apparently. Yeah, and the rest. And the rest. And sometimes kisses from the older women too. Sometimes kisses from the boys. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows with lucky chance. He also earned money playing a fiddle around the village. Oh, lovely. Did -la 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 -la. That's the noise of a fiddle. No. No. <laughs> okay. You do one. Leave, let's leave the noises okay. out of it. I just wanted to set the scene of Lucky Chance yeah, I mean, playing his fiddle. 
Before long, he was known as Lucky Chance. His name was Chance, but they started to call him Lucky Chance. Right. Probably because of all this kissing he was getting. <laughs> probably. He was probably just trading in like a sausage. Yeah, or all the fact he was no, talking, talking good. <laughs> I didn't mean that. No? I meant a literal sausage. I said, oh, I, did, I assumed you meant a literal sausage. Okay, I just thought it's... <sighs> When you're dealing with someone called Lucky right. Chance, who's yes. a wide boy peddler, you can't assume a sausage is ever just a sausage, can you? We all know what a sausage is. These days it would be an aubergine. Right, yeah. That's what the 21st century has brought us. Yeah. Now, here's a full description of Chance. I read this in the vernacular. I found it quite fun. He said he was Danish or something foreign. A rare, nice-looking chap with a right short yellow beard. He used to wear a fisherman's jersey and a fur cap and big boots. His hair wasn't like a foreigner, but cut right short. <laughs> Well, the foreigners all had flowing locks in those days, didn't they? <laughs> I suppose that's what we have to uh, to gather. Especially the Scandinavians. He had short hair, a yellow beard. I can picture him. A fisherman's jersey, a yeah. fur cap. Big boots, very important. Also, could it be a metaphor? Right. Not sure. Now, many of the village girls would crowd at their windows to watch and listen as Chance played his fiddle about Loddon. He, though, seemed particularly interested in Mary of all the village girls. The unattainable one. Some villagers claimed that he had come in search of her from far away. Gossiping, gossiping, gossiping they were. Mary herself did not seem that interested in him. Speaking to him only rarely and apparently over a hedge. The detail comes. The detail comes from Margaret's source. She just sometimes spoke to him over a hedge. Right. Well, it's always good to put a hedge between you and trouble. I think so. And then also maybe you're just seeing the top of their head. The least offensive part. You're not seeing their big boots. Only their fur cap. <laughs> maybe they can't even see you, depending how small you are. Although she was tall and white, as we've established. Now, I thought uh, she was thin and white. Yes, that makes me think she was tall <laughs> as well. And it's also said that uh, the Chegriff witch did not care for Lucky Chance. And once, when he came to the house to try to play the music to Mary, the Chegriff witch threw hot water over him. Yeah, you're on your deathbed. Last thing you want to hear is some dick outside fiddling away. <laughs> You think that was the problem, not the fact that he was trying to talk to the daughter. This incessant fiddling! (laughs) Come on, let me die in peace! That's what she shouted. Don't doubt it. Boiled up a pot of water, flung it out the window. Also, by the time he boiled that water, he's been out there a while, he's asking for it. Yeah, because they had no kettles in those days. Mm. No, they had kettles, but not electric. No. So she was boiling that up in a... On the fire. Just over a stove. hasn't got a gas hob. How slow. Very slow. Or she was boiling that up to make a broth. A witchy stew. You, uh, yeah, just coincidence that the boiling water was hanging around at the time in which the fiddling occurred. Because she sounds quite tempestuous and whimsical. Also, somebody who makes a lot of broth. So I reckon she would have just... Ah! Chance with his fiddle! Ah! Just flung it out the window. Yeah, probably. We're about to have a death. Are you ready? The witch died during the Harvest Festival. Margaret's storytelling source sets the scene. All were in the biggest barn near the village, ready for Harvest Festival. Feasting and making merry. A right old time, it was. Chance sat high up on a beam, playing his fiddle and swigging from a tankard of beer. That's great. While those below flung bits of meat up at him. (laughs) (laughs) For his benefit, presumably. I guess so. I think as reward for his fiddling. Right. Or were they trying to knock him off the beam? Bit of meat's not going to do that. No. And did he fiddle with his mouth open to like catch the meat as it flung up there? It's quite an image. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? With his tankard next to him on the beam. His legs like kicking, yeah. just in a carefree manner, fiddling away. In came Mary to share the news that her mother was on the last leg, as it were. 
this was it. This was it for the Chegriff witch. Would Mrs. Crab come back with her just for the last moments? In fact, along with Crab, most of the women of the village rushed back. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted in on the action. Everyone loves a good death. They wanted to see what was going on. A few of them entered the witch's bedroom, allegedly including Margaret James's source. She claims that she was, she there. was there. Is it like Sex Pistols at the uh, Free Trade Hall? What, everyone was there? Everyone claims they were there, but there were only about 12 people. Who was definitively there? I don't know who was definitively there. If you believe 24-hour party people, Tony Wilson. The Tony Cox, Wilson was there. They were playing. New Order. All of New Order. Or Joy Division, sorry, as was. Yeah, all of them. Uh, Mick Hucknall. Yeah. Mick Hucknall? Mick Hucknall, yeah. He claims he was there. I think he, yeah. Morrissey. And that was what led to the rise of Simply Red. Well, Mick Hucknall, prior to Simply Red, was the lead singer in a band called The Frantic Elevators. Who... And were they like a punk band? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Any good? Oh, terrible. Well, I don't know, actually. No, I can't say that. I, I, they, they did a version of the Simply Red song, Holding Back the Years, from like the early 80s, before Simply Red existed. Christ. But in a kind of like a punk, punk style. crooning way. Oh, Christ, that sounds awful. Yeah. Sorry, this is a diversion. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm happy to always have a diversion. Oh, the thought of... Oh, I just hadn't thought of Mick Hucknall in a long time. And now <laughs> that I've thought of him again, I'm very unhappy about it. But do you remember Charlie Brooker's TV Go Home? The, yes. Uh, the website which brought Charlie Brooker to the masses. And one of the fake TV programmes that always used to be in the fake Radio Times was called Mick Hucknall's Pink Pancakes. <laughs> and the, uh, <laughs> that's what I always think of now when I think of <laughs> Was Mick there Hucknall. a description? Yes, uh, it involves Mick Hucknall pressing his uh, scrotum no! against different... Different transparent surfaces in a <laughs> bit uh, I don't know why. I can't remember now. I thought it was going to be a cookery show. No, it means his balls. His balls squash flat? Yes. Oh, Mick Hucknall and your pink pancakes. Why? Oh, what an image. Christ. Well, Not I'm so keen re- for diversions now, are I'm you? I'm sorry, listeners, that Chris has brought the image of Mick Hucknall's pink pancakes, his squashed balls, squashed against a flat surface wherever he can. Presumably often glass so that you can yeah, see exactly, it from the exactly, other side. Yeah, always, always yeah, transparent. Against a window. Yeah. I bet he's getting some fucking boiling water thrown over him by some people. <laughs> <laughs> Take your pancakes away, Mick. I don't want to see those pancakes anymore. A notorious sexer, of course. Yeah. Oh, dear. Right, let's move away from Mick Hucknall and back to the deathbed of the Chegriff witch, shall we? Let's get back there. Let's picture the scene. Mrs. Crab with Mary and many women of the village have run back to the house. They enter the witch's bedroom. She was standing in the middle of the room in a strange manner that frightened the women who entered. No further details, but... Ooh, bit Blair Witch, isn't it? I know. I don't like it. And maybe her limbs were all in a weird shape or something. Do you think? She oh, was my. all jagged. Kind of jaggedy and... Retching. Odd-looking and horrible and like with a bad facial expression. So that... Ooh, I don't like it. Then she began to curse. She shouted, Mara, take these imps. Let them bite your breasts and you'll be a greater witch than I have been. She continued, You are never to marry Mara. You needn't look like that. I done you a good turn when I bound you to Satan, and he's bound to have you. She then began to have a terrible fit, and she died horribly shrieking and writhing and fitting around the room. Did anyone see the imps? The imps were not seen at this time, but there is more to come on the imps. So poor Mara's been told she shall never marry, only to Satan. As she died, well, she died. Down she went. The other woman left Mary alone in the room. Just to deal with all the mess. Yes, I bet there was loads of mess. As they went, they could hear one of the imps shouting to be let out of the (laughs) box. The old thick box that kept the imps. The women went down to wait. 
<laughs> Bring out the imp. They went to the main room where there was a fire burning in the fireplace and they thought to wait for Mary there to see what happened. After an hour, there was no sign of her. Mrs. Crab, trusty Mrs. Crab, safe in the knowledge of her belief in God, nothing bad can happen. She went to investigate. Mary had covered her mother with a sheet and was crying and praying. She then picked up the box of imps and brought it to the main room where the rest of the women were assembled. Oh, did she fling the imps on the fire? Maybe. But first, the assembled women could hear that one of the imps was crying inside the box like a child. Mm, it's a trick. A horrible crying. It's a trick. Don't let it out. A crying sound like a child from inside the box. One woman asked Mary, Are you going to be a witch? Is that how it works? <laughs> Will you let them bite your breasts? I've heard you can. But that wasn't Mary's intention. Instead, she planned to burn those imps in the fire. Yes, I knew it. But the women wanted to see the imps. Mm. They'd never seen any imps before. Yeah, the imps have poisoned their minds. Open That's the box! An imp's urge towards survival. Yes. Open the box, Mary. Let us see the imps. That's what the women shouted. Mary stood indecisively as now the sound of laughter began to come from within the box. Mary was teetering on the brink. What would it be? Opening the box, let the imps out? Or throw them into the flames? Like a horrifying game show. (laughs) Deal or no deal? (laughs) (laughs) Open the box! Edmund is the imp. No, is the, would the banker be the imp? Because you can't see him. I suppose technically the money would be the imp. Uh, true, and the banker would be the witch. Yeah, shouting be from the voice beyond the of grave. Your conscience. But there's, we all know there's no banker. Who's Edmund's talking to then? No, he's just making it up, isn't he? He's <laughs> just saying he's a skilled improv actor. I'm saying that he's a madman. <laughs> He's hearing voices. He thinks there's a banker, but we know there's no banker. I know, Vin. Edmunds is a madman. He was driven mad because of that guy dying on his show, probably. Fell off of something. I think he was driven mad. Isn't he currently driven mad by HSBC? (laughs) What? I think... Oh, I can't remember this. HSBC are driving Edmunds mad? Yeah, I think it's HSBC. He's basically embroiled in a really big court case against... I think it's HSBC. And I can't remember the details. But he's adamant that... What have they done? They've screwed him over in some way, and I can't remember what it is. Wow. We can find out later. Also, he um, was... I remember when Deal or No Deal came, in an interview he said, oh, it's because I've learned that it's the white feather thing where you visualise a thing happening right. to you and then it happens. Right. And it's originally to do... He'd say the original thing is you visualise a white feather and then you see a white feather. But he visualised Deal or No Deal. <laughs> and then Deal or No Deal happened. In one single visualisation. <laughs> the whole thing. Maybe he just visualised being a, a star again. Oh. And he visualised no Mr Blobby. <laughs> Not on deal or no deal. He's devisualised Blobby. But I bet when he has a nightmare, Blobby pops yeah. out of those boxes on deal or no deal. Why did you burn me? <laughs> blobby, Blobby, Blobby. Yeah, I mean, I was, trans- I was translating. Me, <laughs> oh, God. But what will Mary do? Burn Blobby or not burn right. Blobby? <laughs> So she stands indecisively while some of the women go, show us the imps, we want to see the imps. Mrs Crab, you can imagine what she makes of it all. Yeah, she wants the imps to go on the fire, I expect. Yeah, she probably wants everything to go on the fire from that whole witch's house. At that moment, as Mary stood, a sad refrain was heard from outside the house. Lucky Chance was there with his Mm. fiddle. Hang on, I know who else plays the fiddle. Who? The devil. Does he? Yes. The devil plays the fiddle? Yes. Does he call it a violin? No, I think he definitely calls it the fiddle. Oh, okay. I didn't know the devil played the fiddle. That's interesting. At this sound, 
the fiddle slash violin. Mary threw the box into the fire and the sound of howling imps filled the room. I imagine. Yeah. Kind of like that. The Loddon Parish refused to bury the Chegriff witch. And so she had to be taken to Norwich for her funeral. <laughs> Norwich didn't have anyone. Yep. Norwich didn't have a problem. That's the end of the story of the witch herself. But what happened to Mary? Mm. In a surprising twist, after her mother's death, Mary and Lucky Chance were married. They set off from Yarmouth to places unknown and were never seen or heard from again in Loddon. Some of the locals said that Chance was the devil mm. and that he had come for Mary after all. But Mrs Crabbe said Chance was an angel from God and he had saved Mary from becoming a witch like her mother. What do you think? Definitely the devil. You think so? Yeah, that's even, classic demonic activity. Even though he his fiddling made her throw the imps in the fire? I think that was her last like reaction towards trying to prevent that being her life. Oh, really? Yeah. She knew mm. that by the sound of the fiddle, the devil had come for her and thought her last chance was to throw the imps, the imps in the fire. Yep. But it was to no avail. Seemingly not. She was bound over to the devil, as her mother always said. Yeah, Yarmouth being like the gateway to hell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she was never seen or heard from again, as this woman reports. I mean, that's all very doomy, isn't it? Let's imagine they, you know, went back to Scandinavia and had a lovely life together. Oh, back to Denmark? Yeah. Yeah, that would be nice. Yeah, so that's the story of Mary Chegriff, the witch's daughter. That's fun, isn't it? Yeah, I like it. It's a good one. Yeah. As I say, this is all from Bogies of East Anglia by M.H. James. And I think we'll have more from her, from these good stories of bogeys. bogeys are ripe. So I suppose in this story, is the bogey lucky chance or is it the mother? Or is it the, it the probably imps? Probably the imps, isn't it? The imps are the bogeys. Because a bogey is like a supernatural entity, isn't it? Yeah, like a bogeyman. I suppose so, Sort yeah. of, yeah. but less specific. Yeah, so I don't know that there's any lessons to be learned other than never let the imps out of the box. Yeah, don't trust anyone who plays the violin. diddly diddly <laughs> And don't trust Noel Edmonds. <laughs> Most importantly. <laughs> or Mick Hucknall. We've cast aspersions on a lot of people. There we go, my friends. That was the story of Mary Chigriff, Witch of East Anglia, and it was a little introduction to M.H. James, the unsung pioneer of East Anglian folklore. And I think that's all I have to say. I hope we'll have some stories of religious weirdness for you soon, but let's see what the... Uh, what the pandemic brings let's us. See what Track and Trace says. Yeah, let's see what Track and Trace makes of it all, and we will be back for, with something. We've oh, always yeah. got something for something. you, so we'll be back with something else soon enough. And I hope you're all well, not getting pinged on a weekly basis, <laughs> or traced, or tracked. And I hope you don't have any imps in a box. Thank you, Chris. No, thank you. Okay, I'll see you soon. Goodbye. <laughs>